Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor John Birch, who is a professor of operations management at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. His work focuses on application theory and computation for decision-making under uncertainty with applications in the management of operations in finance, energy, healthcare, manufacturing, public policy, and transportation. He's an INFORMS Fellow, MSOM Society Distinguished Fellow, member of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering, and Editor-in-Chief of Operations Research. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thanks, Gil. Uh, I want to start with one of your papers, uh, Optimal Commissions and Subscriptions in Networked Markets, uh, where you consider a platform that charges commission rates and subscription fees to sellers and buyers uh, for facilitating transactions, but does not directly control the transaction prices, uh, which are determined by the traders. Uh, you say that two salient features of the most uh, online platforms are that they do not dictate the transaction prices and use commissions and or subscriptions uh, for extracting revenues. Um, and you have some, uh, some uh, analysis around what might be optimum uh, for the platform, right? I know that uh, eBay, for example, uh, charges commissions, but I don't think they have a subscription, right? Right, right. Yeah. So on eBay, you know, you, you're just paying a commission. You're not paying to be like, um, you don't have to pay a, a fee just to be a member of e eBay. Yeah. And Amazon is sort of a platform too. Uh, I, I guess the sellers have some sort of subscription there on Amazon. Uh, yeah. I mean, Amazon sort of is, is a little bit of a hybrid in that uh, if you're a prime member, you're paying like a subscription. Yeah. So you're not paying a commission for the things right. like um, delivery charges. And the sellers, I guess, typically pay commissions. Uh, and so, um, and so you want to talk a bit about the paper, what, what you found uh, in terms of optimality? Yeah, the, so the paper was looking at whether these platforms are doing the best thing in terms of the way that, uh, that they 
set their prices and their, their price is basically being these commissions or some kind of subscription. So you can think of subscription might be like you pay um, just per ride, like if for Uber, if you were only paying Uber say $5 for a ride yeah. and then everything else was going to the driver, um, that would be like the, a subscription from the way we were looking at it. Oh, I see, I see, okay, okay. Yeah, so it's not monthly subscription per se, but uh, it's some kind of a constant fee. Right, it's more like a added. fixed, yeah. right, like a fixed fee. Like if you, it's like the flag fee for a taxi cab. Um, okay. Uh, so there's and, there's a little bit of that again with, with Uber. Now Uber is actually sort of separated prices. So hmm. um, the price that you pay as a rider is actually different and doesn't have to be necessarily even related to the, the value that the driver receives. Um, mm. So they have an even, I would say, even more sort of complicated way of doing it. Um, but uh, generally, the way that they set the commissions doesn't vary by where you might be. So if you're in downtown Chicago and you want to go to O'Hare Airport, uh, you pay the same commission, even though the price might might be different, as um, going from, let's say, uh, a nearby suburb uh, to O'Hare. Okay, so price might be different, meaning, uh, so the cut between the driver and Uber are going to be different? Well, uh, the commission in the, the way Uber is set up now doesn't, doesn't change. Um, so the, the fraction that the driver receives yeah. um, is, is somewhat the same. Um, but that's not necessarily related to how much the... So there's like a, a commission for the, uh, the driver and there is a commission that the passenger is paying and those two are not necessarily related. Oh, okay, okay. And so... So, you know, one of the things I think you find in the paper is that it is not optimum to have a constant um, uh, formula, right, for commissions and subscriptions. Uh, it might be optimum to vary that by, by consumer and, and seller types. Right, yeah. Well, what we found is that the platforms could actually drive more uh, business and it could be both. It, it could be both beneficial to, uh, let's say, the providers as well as the customers, um, and the platform, uh, mm -hmm. by varying how much they charge in terms of a commission or in terms of some kind of a fee, mm -hmm. uh, by the different locations. And then what we did is we looked at how would this apply to Airbnb, and we looked at Airbnb in Chicago. Yeah. And we found that if Airbnb in Chicago had actually instead of charging a fixed commission, which is the way they, they charge now, if they had varied that commission by location, they could have increased their revenues and they also could have increased availability for, um, for customers. In other words, by lowering the commissions in areas where people wouldn't necessarily be renting a room or an apartment, um, they, uh, could actually drive a greater uh, volume 
number of customers, um, as well as increasing their revenue. Yeah, so so obviously you cannot vary that uh, by person by person, uh, but but uh, it's uh, you're saying uh, by by location, by regions, uh, by perhaps even time um, that you actually rent it. Those features uh, could suggest a, a varying rate that might be more optimum. Right. Yeah. By by varying the rates. Um, both the, the platform could benefit, but, but also consumers could benefit. Um, by, in particular, having lower commissions in areas that people would not necessarily um, make their first choice. So instead mm -hmm. of downtown Chicago, maybe in Hyde Park. Um, so you might have lower commissions in Hyde Park. More people would then prefer um, to go to Hyde Park, and that might increase the number of people who come to Chicago. Right. And so their data should sort of tell them that, right? Um, do they not use the data that way? Yeah, I, they, um, they have information about um, how, how likely people, and that, that's basically what we were using in our study, yeah. um, about how, how likely people are um, to, uh, to use their service, in other words, to to get a room or an apartment through them, mm -hmm. um, but uh, but they they tend to have a fixed commission rate. Um, I think mostly just out of simplicity. Yeah. Um, but what our what our study shows is that actually um, it you know they're they're essentially losing a, a significant amount of potential revenue, um, but it it also could be better for consumers. Um, right. If, uh, if they're able to vary uh, what those commissions would be. Yeah, so certain areas, it's all sort of a lose-lose <laughs> uh, position. Um, consumers lose out and they're not, not, uh, the platform itself is not maximizing profits. Uh, whereas in other areas, perhaps uh, they're losing revenue, even though consumers might be getting it at a cheaper rate or something like that. Right, yeah, that's, that's, um, that, that's, basically the, the mechanism behind this, that um, in Chicago, downtown Chicago is very popular. Many people want to stay there. Um, so Airbnb could have a slightly higher commission. Uh, now that's going to mean that fewer people will rent in downtown Chicago, uh, but they'll be more likely to rent in those locations where the commissions are lower. Yeah, so John, more generally, are you are you suggesting then, you know, obviously we have dynamic pricing. Are you suggesting sort of dynamic commissioning? Yeah, it's it's effectively like dynamic pricing. Okay. It's um, yeah, it's it's changing the uh, commission that's received. Now in, in Airbnb, uh, since they don't set the price at all, uh, the, the price is basically set by the hosts and then the yeah. consumers either take it or not. Um, so they don't have that price control. Whereas uh, Uber, who is setting the price to the consumer, they can directly set the price. Uh, so that is effectively like Uber is determining what the commission is going to be because they're directly setting the price to the They're directly setting the price. So they're, they're practicing dynamic pricing. So if the ratio between the driver and Uber is a constant, 
they're essentially directing what commission they would pay the driver to through the price. Right, right. And that, and the way Uber works now is they're basically setting both of those separately. Uh, in other words, how much the driver's getting, how much the uh, consumer's paying, those are two separate decisions um, mm -hmm. that Uber's making now. Uh, and Airbnb, more simplistically, they, they have a commission uh, schedule and essentially they're just applying that on whatever the hosts are setting the prices prices for. Uh, and so wouldn't the host take that into account to, to set the right price, uh, right quote-unquote price uh, to fill their capacity or that doesn't happen? Right, right, yeah. So this... Uh, this will also affect how the host sets uh, sets what price they would be offering. Um, so if Airbnb is offering a higher, or Air, Airbnb is extracting a higher commission, um, the, the host may also want to increase the price, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, again would tend to to lower the demand there. Yeah, so I guess um, one issue Airbnb might have is that the host, if the, if they were to practice some sort of dynamic pricing, that might become maybe too complicated for the host, perhaps. I don't know. Um, if I, I guess if the host knew that the commissions in my area were a fixed amount, yeah. then, I mean, then it would be whatever. I mean, Airbnb has changed their commission rates over time. So they're a little bit used to having um, some kind of changes. Okay. Okay. But, but you're not suggesting dynamic pricing per se, but what you're saying is that Chicago and Hyde Park could have different, different commission schedules right. uh, based on what they understand from the data. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so downtown Chicago and Hyde Park should probably have different uh, commission rates based right. on people's preferences. And um, you also find in the paper, John, that uh, there are some uh, sort of interesting um, pricing uh, issues. If you charge um, commissions and or subscriptions to only one side of the transaction, you get one answer as opposed to both, right? Right. And, and yeah, what's it, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. In certain circumstances, you can just charge just charge the host, for example, or just charge the guest. Uh, but in general, it's best if you can apply commissions on both sides. And Airbnb does that to some extent. It's it's um, it, there is both a charge on the host side as well as on the guest side. Um, but what we found is that by varying and particularly on the host side, by varying the commissions that they charge on that side, um, they could increase revenues and actually increase the total number of people who stay. Mm -hmm. And so, so, so one interesting thing is you say that uh, if you sort of consistently follow a revenue maximizing logic uh, at the platform level, it, it uh, accomplishes at least two-thirds of the maximum achievable social welfare as well. So it's, it's sort of a win-win. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, what I was, that's what I was trying to say. But yeah, yeah. so consumers and, and hosts win as well. Right, right. 
Yeah, I want to jump into another uh, paper, um, Dynamic Learning and Market Making and Spread Betting Markets right. uh, with Informed Betters. Um, so uh, you study uh, the profit maximization problem of a market maker in a spread betting market. The spread betting is sort of the sports market, I think, right? Um, right, and, right. And, and so in this market, you say the market maker quotes cutoff lines for the outcome of a certain future event as prices and bettors bet on whether the event outcome exceeds the cutoff lines. Uh, and one complication for the market maker here is that uh, the bettors come in two varieties, I guess. You know, there are, there are people who are more informed uh, doing strategic manipulation, so to speak. And there are more general bettors uh, who don't really have any information, right? So. The, the market maker has sort of an optimization problem taking into account all the participants. Right, yeah. So there's the, the market maker, uh, the man, let's say the sports book manager, uh, yeah. is, uh, is trying to gather information about what's the outcome of a particular event, a particular game. And they don't know how much, but they don't know how much information people have. So some people might have a lot of information. They might know um, that uh, a particular player or set of players are not able to play. Hmm. Um, one example that we had was a, a game uh, a couple of years ago with the Golden State Warriors. Hmm. And their star is Steph Curry um, and uh, uh, Clay Thompson um, were originally scheduled to play in the game. And so, so Golden State was favored. Mm. Um, but the coach made a decision at some point not to, not to play the two of them. Right. And um, what we saw is that some people started to bet against the Golden State Warriors. So this is, so some people had this inside information before it had been released. Mm. And they started to they started to place heavy bets against them. Uh, then the information gets released, and the the line of the game changed dramatically. It went from the Golden State Warriors being favored by nine points to the Golden State Warriors being um, essentially on on the losing end by five points. Um, so it so it changed. Uh, dramatically uh, when this information was released to the public, but, it, but there were some people who already knew it. Um, and so there, there are some people that, um, that have this inside information might be trading on it. So these are not, uh, John, these are not regulated markets, right? So there are no insider trading restrictions no, in this market? No, there's no kind of insider trading restriction. And that's, that's the, the role that these managers play, that they're supposed to have the information and they're supposed to set the lines in a way that, uh, that everyone has an equal opportunity to, to win from the game. Um, uh, but in this case, uh, there were some people that, that had this additional information and started to bet um, against it. Um, so what we were trying to answer in the paper was, well, how should how should the uh, sports manager operating a market like this, how should they operate it when they want to learn what, what people know, mm -hmm. um, and they, but they don't want to actually be fooled. So 
what we show in the paper is it's possible that one of these uh, informed batters who has this additional information could actually fool the market maker and end up uh, making a great deal on the game. Yeah. And so what we, we come up with is, is a strategy that a, a sports manager can use in order to avoid that situation. Yeah, so um, I don't know, I don't know uh, much about this, this market, but uh, in that basketball uh, game, uh, how far in advance uh, does the market open, so to speak, for something like that? Uh, for most of these games, the market is most intense immediately following the previous game. So in basketball, that usually means uh, two or three days. Um, for football, it's always one week or essentially one week. Um, for baseball, it could be just one day. Um, it's most intense then, but uh, could you... Intense. Yeah, but the market opens yeah. um, at the beginning of the season, essentially, for all, all the games. Okay. But there's okay. very little activity until, uh, particularly in, in basketball and football, um, very little activity before the, the week of the game, hmm. because uh, people don't know who's going to be healthy, they're uncertain about the games. Um, uncertain about who will be playing um, and are not inclined to, to bet on those future events like that, unless it's like the championship game. Right, right. And so market, break, market maker has um, some level of risk if there is an informed better in the pool. Right. Otherwise, they could, they could basically just assume it's sort of normally distributed, right? Right. Yeah, they can they can assume that, and there's there, we have some evidence that market makers realize that sometimes uh, betters are biased um, for certain teams. Certain teams are favored more than they really should be, um, and the market makers adjust their odds to try to take advantage of that to some extent. Yeah. Um, but they also try to they they try to glean this information from. Any, anyone who is informed. So they try to, effectively they call it the smart money. They try to see what what is the smart money doing? People that might have some additional information and um, how can they use that to set their odds so that they don't end up losing substantially? Mm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, um, I don't know if it happens in the US, but certain uh, markets, um, there is also a problem of fixing the games, right? So uh, right. there has been a number of instances in cricket, for example, uh, in right. India and elsewhere. Um, I wondered, uh, since these are not necessarily regulated markets, but uh, game fixing obviously is, is, not, uh, is not allowed, um, whether th this type of data might allow whoever is looking into it, uh, maybe early indications that the game might be fixed. Yeah, that could, it, it could allow for that kind of investigation. This is becoming um, a, a bigger issue now because um, essentially now online sports betting is legal um, in the United States. In other words, there's no federal law against it. Um, so now it goes by state. Um, Illinois has recently made it legal, so there's been um, a lot of activity, a, a lot of advertising for the online sports betting market. Um, 
now, in fact, uh, used to be that uh, Nevada, for example, was a, the biggest state for sports betting. Um, since this law has gone into place, now it's moved to New Jersey. So New mm. Jersey has the largest uh, <laughs> sports betting. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and so in the paper, so this is from a market maker's perspective, they have to sort of balance the learning that can get over time by looking at uh, the entire pool of betting. But also, you say they have to sort of bluff proof, um, you know, what, whatever they actually come up with in terms of right. the spread, right? And so, uh, and so, so you come up with a, a family of policies to, to do that. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the policies that we come up with are, are, we call them inertial policies. They're basically policies in which the market maker commits to following a certain strategy that's fixed based on what bets there are. Mm -hmm. um, and that's different from what we usually think of people should do, which are called Bayesian policies. So that mm. people use the information that they have and they update that information. That's the Bayesian update. Yes. Um, so, but if they did that, then they would be susceptible to manipulation. That's the problem. That mm. when, when you do that, early information ends up having, uh, plays a larger role than later information. And so what can happen is that the, the informed bettors can bluff at the beginning, force the market maker to move in the wrong direction, mm. and then take advantage later when the market maker has more confidence in what they think the spread might be, and that therefore they're more reluctant to move it, mm. uh, then they can take advantage of that. So by, by following this inertial policy, they're able to avoid that. Right. So, so for my understanding, John, so this is essentially the market maker advertising what their policy is and just sticking to it. And then sticking to it. That's right. Yeah. Essentially saying, here's, here are the rules I'm going to follow. And um, there's no way if I follow these rules that you as an informed better, you, you can still make money. You can still make money off your information but you can't, you can't make money by fooling me and making excessive profits off of it. Right, right. So the informed better, um, I guess the informed better cannot see the book, but the informed better could see how the spread is changing, right? Right, they can see the spread changing, right. Um, and so um, can they, can they you know, sort of, you know, like you're suggesting the, the strategic manipulation, sort of dabble in it, and if it is moving in one direction, slowly nudge it in that direction, and at some point take the other, other side or something like that. But you're saying if, if the market maker sticks to the original policy, the chance of that happening is much lower. Yes, that if the market maker sticks to uh, that inertial policy that we described, then any kind of bluffing any kind of nudging that that informed better might make yeah. would end up being a losing strategy. So they're just going to lose money by doing that. Right. Uh, right. So the best thing they can do is just to whatever uh, whatever odds they have, if they're in their favor, they should bet on that, and that's it. Right. 
Okay, okay. Um, I want to get into another paper, uh, a different area. So credit shock propagation along supply chains, evidence from CDS, credit default swaps market. Um, and you say in the paper, using a panel of uh, credit default swap spreads and supply chain links, you observe that favorable and unfavorable credit shocks propagate through the supply chains in the CDS market. It's a very interesting way to look at uh, look at shocks in the supply chain, right? You can actually see how the risk is moving around in the entire system through the spread. Right. Yeah, and what I think is most, well, I think there are a few things that are interesting about this. Um, you know, we, we might expect that if, if your customer has, uh, has some kind of problem, if your customer is starting to go into default, um, then that's probably going to be bad for you if you're, you're the supplier. Um, and that's, that's been demonstrated in the stock market. Um, we've seen that uh, if a, a customer has a stock price go down, their miss, miss earnings, um, then the supplier is, is probably going to go down. Although it sometimes happens slowly. So that information is actually diffused somewhat slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a paper by uh, Lauren Cohen and Andrea Frazzini uh, that looked at that uh, several years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had an example of uh, Callaway golf clubs. Um, and Callaway uh, m- made a statement that they were going to miss their earnings target, uh, m- miss it substantially. Yeah. Uh, so, so Callaway's stock went down about mm-hmm. 25%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Callaway's major supplier, Coastcast, which makes all the shafts for Callaway, mm-hmm. and for whom Callaway represented about 50% of their sales, mm. uh, Coastcast had absolutely no effect. So um, <laughs> Callaway goes down by 25%. Uh, Coastcast stock remains constant mm. until about a month. So it takes about a month. And then gradually over the course of the month, uh, Coastcast uh, stock goes down by about the same amount that Callaway. Mm. Um, so, so they put, they, uh, put that paper out, um, in, in another paper, uh, I looked at, um, this kind of propagation in the stock market to suppliers. And it turns out um, that that happens to, uh, supply for suppliers as well. So if your supplier, mm-hmm. um, misses earnings, it turns out that's, that's bad for your stock price as well. Right. Um, and then what we wanted to see as well is this true for the CDS market. Um, in, in the stock market, it looks like it was a little bit delayed. Yeah. Although yeah. after this Cohen and Fritzini paper, uh, there were a number of funds that were set up to try to exploit this. <laughs> and uh, essentially the effect disappeared. But One month is a long was, time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what we found was that the, uh, the supplier effect was, was still there. So the, uh, so the supplier effect. Um, was actually still there. We wanted to see if it was in the CDS market as well. Yeah. And um, yes, but it, it's very immediate. The, the CDS market seems to react almost instantaneously. That is, oh, if, if 
your customer uh, starts to default or starts to have difficulty so that their CDS value, their CDS spread goes higher, uh, then your CDS spread's going to go higher. So, so how do you explain that, John? You know, we tend to think that the markets reflect information um, reasonably fast. Is it uh, is explanation uh, explanation for CDS immediate reaction, sort of delayed reaction in the stock market related to liquidity or something else? I I think that the stock market, because that there's more dif- diffusion of uh, the participants in the market, mm. it's it's. Uh, it's not as quick to react. That is, it, it takes it takes a little bit longer for news um, to travel, and it's not as transparent. That market, at least, is not as informed about uh, the uh, supply chain relationships that that firms have. There's a CDS um, CDS market. The participants there arguably are more sophisticated. Right and and can see that um, that supply chain effects a lot faster. Yeah, and they, I think they have visibility of the supply chain effects. Um, and what we show in the paper is if that for firms that have greater analyst coverage, the reaction is faster. Uh, so uh, it seems like that in the CDS market, the, the information is traveling. Um, quite quickly, and it's traveling in both directions about the, the same amount. That is, if your customer is in trouble, uh, your CDS spread is going to be affected about the same as whether your supplier is in, is in trouble. And I saw, I, I noticed a little bit of a difference. I don't know if it is statistically relevant um, on the customer uh, uh, up jump even, which is a, a adverse uh, credit shock, 63 basis points move, whereas on the supply side is 74 basis points. It just, is that uh, different statistically relevant? No, that's, they're, they're, those are essentially the same. Yeah, so that's uh, the supplier and customer effect seems to be about, about the same. Now, what's also interesting is that good news also is propagated. It's not propagated as heavily as, as bad news. Mm. Um, but if someone's CDS spread goes down significantly, uh, then both their customers and suppliers see their uh, CDS spreads go down. Right. And, and the effect actually goes through several tiers. So not only the first tier suppliers, but second tier and even third tier suppliers and customers um, have have effects as well. Mm. Yeah, and you also say that industry competition and financial linkages between supply chain partners such as trade, credit, and large sales exposures amplify the shock propagation along supply chain. So that is that is fairly intuitive. That's what you would expect to see. Right. Um, and so, so, um, uh, related to that, I want to get into another paper, and this is specific to what just happened to us, uh, the impact of COVID-19 on supply chain credit risk, right. um, where you examine uh, how supply chain activity reflects into credit risk uh, during different phases of COVID-19 pandemic, 
uh, again, uh, focusing on the CDS default swap spreads uh, and US-China supply chain links. Um, and so what do you mean by two phases is sort of China getting into trouble and uh, getting out of it and the rest of the world getting into trouble, right? And so you can see right. data in two different horizons. Right, yeah. And so what, what we found is in that, that first period when uh, the virus, uh, when people knew that the virus had community spread in China, um, so that's that's the period of essentially following February 1. Mm-hmm. Um, and when China started to lock down, and so uh, many Chinese businesses um, were forced to close during that lockdown period, um, what we saw is that people in or firms in the United States who had Chinese suppliers saw their CDS spreads go up uh, significantly yeah. uh, during that period. Uh, but then what happened in, during the period when the virus was spreading within uh, the United States, uh, but while China was actually reopening, uh, what we saw is that firms with Chinese uh, suppliers saw their CDS spreads actually go down. Uh, so CDS spreads went up if you had Chinese suppliers um, during that that first period where, where China uh, was in a lockdown phase, and then they went down during the period when China started to reopen and uh, businesses in the United States and, and Europe were, were being shut down. Mm-hmm. So, so from a supply chain flexibility perspective, John, um, you know, is it... I guess, uh, so if you, if you think about two cases where you have customers and suppliers in a, in a location like China, as opposed to another supply chain where you have, you know, suppliers in China, but consumers in the U.S., uh, how would these two networks differ in terms of its, you know, its overall risk in a shock? Well, it's... You, you actually get exposure from um, where, uh, wherever your suppliers and customers are. So, um, so the, the fact that your customers are in a location uh, where business are, businesses are being shut down, um, that's gonna, that uh, is uh, going to lead to stress for you and uh, therefore your CDS, your, your default uh, likelihood is going to increase. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so any any of any of these exposures when uh, there is going to be some sort of disruption in those locations lead to changes in uh, the CDS spreads. So the CDS spreads again react very quickly, uh, and they they uh, include that information about uh, about your suppliers. Um, I was going to yeah. say, but, but what we also find is that there is moderation, so that if, for example, if I have uh, if I have suppliers in multiple locations, so I might have Chinese suppliers, but I also have uh, suppliers um, elsewhere in Asia or, or suppliers from South America or Europe, um, and then uh, having those additional locations of suppliers actually leads to mitigation of the effects uh, mm. that, that I might have from China. 
Yeah, th- so that's what I was trying to get to. So, you know, uh, if you are regionally organized where you have suppliers and customers, then a, a shock in that region, you're going to get a double whammy, right? You're going to right. get from both sides. Um, right. But if you have a supply chain that is sort of, um, you know, spread out, uh, what you're finding is there is a lag in that shock traveling uh, in that supply chain. So from a policy perspective, from a, from a management uh, decision perspective, the, the, that, um, you know, duration for that shock to travel uh, does it actually give you some additional leverage in terms of managing the business or uh, or not not really it it might give you a little bit of warning uh, so uh, if I mean if you're in a business where you can find different suppliers and we we tried to look a little bit at that in terms of flexibility so people that have flexibility yeah um, mm-hmm. who are able to find different suppliers um, it seems like they're less affected yeah so um, so the fact that I have uh, a distant supplier, um, they have a shock. I know that that's going to take some time to actually um, affect me. Um, if I'm in a business where actually where I can find different suppliers, uh, then that that effect goes down. And and CDS spreads appear to reflect that. Yeah, it's interesting. This pandemic is sort of shocks traveling back and forth <laughs> in some ways, right? Uh, now, the U.S. has a shock uh, that is going to slowly travel back to China. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been it, it's been uh, an interesting process to see how these these shocks are, are being transmitted. Uh, again, what 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 I found interesting about this is the the sophistication of the CDS market. I think the CDS market is very much aware of what these different businesses do. Um, we saw that, for example, that uh, firms that have greater exposure to, to the household channel, well, it depends on what kind of things we're providing to the household channel. If you're providing things like staple products um, that, aren't, that weren't really affected by the lockdowns, uh, then that was, again, a mitigating factor in terms of your CDS values. Um, but if you're providing things that people don't necessarily need to buy, like electronics, um, then that had uh, you had you had more of an effect from the mm-hmm. So um, so in conclusion, John. So you know, um, pandemic is still around. Um, who knows what's going to happen? We might have a COVID twenty behind COVID nineteen. Right. Um, yeah, what What would you, based on your research, uh, what would you say? Uh, you know, from a co- from a company policy perspective how to best think about uh, organizing your supply chain? What would be the dominant way to think about it? Um, I, I think having flexibility is uh, one of the biggest uh, things that, that firms might be able to do. That is m- making sure that you have alternative qualified suppliers um, and suppliers in different regions. Um, if you can pick up on suppliers in in different regions of the world, uh, then you'll be able to react um, to uh, conditions that might be changing in those yeah. different situations. Is there um, is there any kind of capital structure uh, issues that firms might have learned from this this shock? Yes, we we also saw 
that firms that uh, had, had greater cash, uh, firms that had lower leverage, um, they were less exposed uh, to, the, to the issues um, from these shocks. Uh, right. So it, it suggests that, uh, that firms need to, in their risk management, uh, they need to be planning about these events. I mean, this is what, you, I'm not sure if it's really once a century. It might be a once a, every two decades kind of thing. <laughs> right. yeah. um, it's, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think it's more, I mean, particularly if, if everyone, from a, from a disease point of view, I think it's actually more like a once in, once in two or three decade event. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in which case, if, People are going to react to events like this. Um, then businesses have to be prepared, and that that should be part of your risk management strategy. Yeah, there's there's always a cost to it, um, and so yeah, there's a cost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I also wondered. So CVS works uh, very much like an insurance policy, right? So whoever is on the other side of the transaction um, also has the same information. So the the, the spreads are. Um, are efficient, I would imagine, right? Right, yeah. I, that's, that's one of the reasons why we like to look at these CDS markets, um, because each party actually is, is really trying to uh, offload uh, risk or, or incur risk, but in, incur it in a way in which they, they think they're being fairly compensated. Right. Uh, so there's, in other words, I, I, I think there's relatively little speculation in the CDS market. So it mm -hmm. seems to be more driven by risk management practices and therefore um, not as susceptible maybe to sort of speculative um, activity that, that you might see in other kinds of markets. Do they, um, do they look at a company's CDS uh, having more uh, diversifiable risk, uh, and so if, if you know if they're practicing portfolio management more traditionally, and you have a lot of different industries, a lot of different size of companies, uh, presumably you have some diver diversifying risk away. But this is a systematic shock, and right. um, and it won't work in that case. Right, right, yeah. So uh, yeah, so that that's one of the issues with CDS is like is tail risk. And, and tail risk is, is, is quite different from um, the, the standard market kind of risk. Yes. Um, so tail risk is very poorly, right? So um, yeah, so that it's, it's often quite, quite systematic and, and it's, or systemic in, in its uh, effect. Yeah, so if it is systematic, then the advantage the providers of the swap has is just capital. What what other advantage might they have? Yeah, no, it's it's just capital. Um, okay. Um, yeah, and that's I mean, and so if they don't have capital, that's why these markets can can collapse, and that's why you know we had a lot of issues in two thousand eight when people right. were putting these all together yeah. and uh, and uh, uh, put, putting them together into uh, securities. Right, right. And so the buyers have to be aware of that as well, right? There yeah, is the counterparty risk there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Uh, 
Thanks so much, John. Uh, this has been great. Uh, thanks for spending time with me. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. Thanks. It was great, great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.